Welcome to the Clinical Consult, a podcast from the National Register of Health Service Psychologists. I'm Daniel Elkert, and I'm speaking today with Dr. Jeffrey Barnett, a licensed psychologist, professor of psychology, and associate dean at Loyola University, Maryland, about special considerations of informed consent. Dr. Barnett is board certified in clinical psychology and clinical child and adolescent psychology, and has previously served as president of the Maryland Psychological Association. He is the recipient of numerous accolades, including a recent presidential citation from the American Psychological Association for Distinguished Service. Dr. Barnett, thanks so much for joining me on the program. Uh, Thank you, Dan. It's great to be here. Jeff, many psychologists working in integrated care clinics with a variety of healthcare professionals encounter different types of challenges relating to informed consent. Could you comment on what some of these challenges may be for psychologists in these settings? Certainly, and as you say, this is a very common practice scenario. While there are many who work in private practice and have much more control over how they engage in informed consent and how they establish their policies, if you work in any type of a clinic, hospital, or integrated practice setting, then you're going to be working with other professionals and not just professionals in your profession, but other professions as well. And each profession may have different standards and expectations for informed consent. So, I mean, you may be working in a clinic or other healthcare facility where they have specific clinic-wide policies that have to be followed, and there might be an actual clinic informed consent document that everyone who works there is required to use. So there might be this one uniform informed consent procedure that everyone is provided who works there at this clinic. At the same time, we have the ability to add to it or modify it uh, because the nature of our services might be different than what some of the other professionals are doing. It's also important that we do help clients understand the team treatment approach and how access to their private information might occur and how it actually might enhance their treatment. That it's not necessarily a negative that other professionals will learn about their care or that will be coordinating treatment and consulting with other members of the treatment team, uh, then that's actually a positive and it's a hallmark of interprofessional practice. But again, we would have to ensure that we review that with clients and make sure they understand that and are willingly participating in the treatment that's going to be provided. So I heard you say a phrase there, team-oriented care. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more uh, what you meant by that and how psychologists can adequately explain what that means to a patient during the informed consent process. Certainly. So, again, it's possible I could work at a clinic or hospital by myself just providing care, but in an integrated care setting, uh, typically called interprofessional practice, it's really more of a team treatment approach. So there could be a psychologist, there could be a primary care physician, a psychiatrist, nursing, uh, there might be a social worker involved, depends on what the services are that are being provided, but there could be a range of professionals who are working collaboratively to assist this client or patient towards their treatment goals. And instead of isolating each element of someone's treatment, it's a much more holistic and integrated approach. 
that's wonderful. And that can really help enhance treatment outcomes and much more communication between professionals uh, than might traditionally occur. But at the same time, that does have implications for the patient or client, and they do need to understand you know, what is the treatment approach that we have here? How is it that uh, treatment will be provided? How do the different professionals you're working with work together? How is information shared? How do we coordinate your treatment and collaborate with the goal of providing you with the best care possible? I see. So there's definitely communication that needs to occur to orient the patient about what those different types of professionals do and how they might be related to their ongoing care. One thing you alluded to a moment ago is that oftentimes psychologists working in integrated care clinics use electronic medical records to store protected health information or PHI. So what implications does this have for discussing informed consent with patients? Well, the first issue is every client has the right to know how their confidential information will be stored, used, and protected. And so, you know, what are the mechanisms in place? What are the procedures for protecting their confidential information? At the same time, electronic health records provide quick, easy access to the records by all members of the treatment team. And so clients will need to know upfront who may have access to their records. What's a really important issue is that the way psychologists and some other mental health clinicians document with psychotherapy notes can be viewed differently than what's often considered the treatment record or in a medical setting, the medical record. And so one has to have in place uh, mechanisms for perhaps keeping psychotherapy notes separate from the actual treatment record and that members of the treatment team might all freely have access to the treatment record, but the psychotherapy notes might be much more tightly controlled to protect each client's privacy. And a lot of this has to do with need to know and which members of the team really need access to what information and would all members of a treatment team really need to read a client's psychotherapy notes. And one could make the argument that that's not necessary to provide good care but to have access to the treatment record, which provides more basic and general information, might be very helpful. And then there are just specific documentation requirements, such as for third-party reimbursement and legal requirements for documentation. So we, we do need to have a treatment record that is stored. Could you quickly clarify, there's this distinction I'm hearing between treatment record and psychotherapy notes. Could you clarify what that distinction is? Yes. So the, the psychotherapy notes might be the actual detailed information on what the client said, what issues you discussed, their affect, their mood, your behavioral observations of them. It's really what transpired in the session, the details of it. And it typically can be very specific and detailed. And, and it can contain a lot of information that if it was disclosed, could potentially be embarrassing to a client or even damaging to them. Whereas in the treatment record, which others may have more ready access to, as I described, that might be just more general information. You know, what were the, who was present? What were the general issues worked on? An update on the client's progress, mm. any recommendations for the, moving forward, 
it provides a basic overview of the treatment being provided, but it's not as sensitive, perhaps, for the clients as what might be the detail that might be included in a psychotherapy note. And those can be stored separately and to provide different access. I see. Sometimes informed consent documents can be difficult for patients to understand. From your perspective, what can psychologists do to address this? Well, one of the first issues does pertain to the actual documents themselves that you're describing. And a lot of research shows that on average, we want to make sure that these informed consent documents are at about a fifth to eighth grade reading level. And in Microsoft Word, there is a, a mechanism in it called the flesh Kincaid reading level. So you can actually go into that and for any document, see what the reading level is, what grade level the reading difficulty is. And so then it might be too high and you might say, oh, well, this particular word is jargon or I can change this word, like I can change the word documentation to my notes and maybe that lowers the level or in any kind of psychological jargon or professional terminology might not really be readily understandable to members of the public. So that's one issue is to ensure that the documents themselves are at an appropriate level for the average person to read. And then it's vital that we review verbally with our clients the information contained in these documents to just give someone a stack of papers on a clipboard, you know, in your waiting room that they're supposed to read and then they can sign it and say, okay, you've been consented. You know, that's not informed consent. The idea is we actually review with them. I mean, the reading of it is good. That's the first step. And then we go over it with them and it's an ongoing process and they can take those documents home with them. They can read them again. They can ask questions. We can review it with them, uh, any salient elements of it over time, but we really don't want to just rely on the written documents and their processing of it and assume that they do understand it or assume that that really is informed consent because the informed portion of making sure they understand what they're reading and therefore what they're agreeing to, that that's a vital part of our responsibility. So what about in situations when there are language differences between the patient and the psychologist? So it's very possible, you know, we live in a very rapidly diversifying society and we can have clients of numerous types of individual differences and forms of diversity. And one of those certainly is language. And we don't want to just automatically assume that every new client we work with is going to be fluent in English and is able to read these materials and understand what we're discussing. And, you know, if there are any issues or concerns about comprehension, we'll need to assess their ability to understand. And we might need to use a translator if we're going to work with them or if we're fluent in their language, of our, you know, their primary language, uh, we might shift from English to that other language, but we'd have to be competent in fluency to do that. And if we're not, it's possible we can refer them elsewhere, but oftentimes making referrals is not always possible. That, you know, there are great needs, people can be in crisis, there could be limited options available in one's local area, and we might need to make the best of it. You know, sometimes it's us or nothing. It's not, well, what's the gold standard? 
the gold standard might not be feasible in this situation. And so oftentimes the use of a translator might assist us to provide needed services to someone for whom there's a language barrier. I also want to mention that there are a number of different um, ethics and clinical issues relevant to the use of translators, whether they be professional translators or sometimes even family members that mental health professionals need to address. And the National Register has two great articles on the use of translators in the fall 2017 issue of the Journal of Health Service Psychology that I strongly recommend and that really provide great information on these different ethics and clinical issues, challenges, and dilemmas. So one area I'm wondering about is I heard you say in situations it may be appropriate for the psychologist if they do speak the primary language of their patient at a competent level to shift over to using that language during the informed consent process. For psychologists who are early career, who are receiving supervision, could you comment on um, what potential challenges that might play, particularly if their supervisor, say, is is also not fluent in that language? So translation is always a challenge. I mean, I think, but first of all, anyone who's receiving supervision, who's in training, any major decisions we make uh, about the treatment provided or even how we conduct informed consent has to be reviewed first with the supervisor. So we'd have input from the supervisor. Unless we're licensed, we're not going to be uh, operating independently. And hopefully, the, you know, the supervisor would be able to know what your level of fluency is and your level of comfort in working with the client. But then you would have to still translate into English for the supervisor's benefit what has transpired with the client. Or let's say the supervisor is viewing videos of the interaction with a client or listening to audio recordings. Well, if it's in another language, again, you then would have to translate it for your supervisor or else you wouldn't really be able to benefit from supervision if the supervisor doesn't comprehend what's being discussed. Another thing is there are not just language issues, but there's cultural issues, so which are very much interconnected. So helping the supervisor understand the nuances of culture as well, that it's not just a, let me translate this word or translate this phrase, but what's the context? You know, how is this terminology used for someone from this background and how does it mean, what's its meaning for that individual? It's more than just translating the words. There's there's greater meaning from a cultural context. So if we move beyond these language differences, could you speak to best practices for modifying the informed consent process when there are cultural differences between the psychologist and the patient? Certainly. And again, there are so many clients we might work with that are from diverse backgrounds, and it just highlights the need that we first understand who is this person that we're meeting with. And if they are from a diverse background, uh, we need to consider that in how we engage in this informed consent process. So, you know, just as one important example might be, you know, we frequently in, in the United States, you know, if we come from a very Western approach, we focus on individual autonomy and independence and our own decision-making and so on, you know, and assertiveness and all these values in a Western society. But if you have a client who's coming from a collectivistic cultural background, that's a very different approach and a very different set of values. And so you might have an adult client for whom it would be very appropriate and if not necessary 
to have their parents present or community elders or their grandparents to participate in the informed consent process. That for them to be personally making this decision might not be appropriate from their background. And if we try to push them you know, from our cultural lens, that can be very alienating for them and can actually help not set a good tone for a good working relationship moving forward. You, know, you could have clients who have a background where an example of a, a woman who says, you know, my husband is the decision maker and he will decide this. And if we say, no, you're an adult, you know, you have to decide, you know, we have to respect someone's background. If, if that's their background, we have to decide how can I work with these people respecting their cultural background and beliefs and values so as, again, not to alienate them and also not to impose my values on them from the outset, since that's really not going to be our goal. I heard you say there, there's an important piece of not imposing one's own values onto the patient during the informed consent process. How can psychologists form a better understanding of what their values might be and gain insight into whether or not they are in fact doing that imposition? So anyone, whether you're a graduate student, an early career professional, or have years of experience, it's vital that we are self-aware and we reflect on what are our values. And there's a whole body of literature from research that shows that even if we're consciously trying not to impose our own values on our clients, there's something called values conversion, where the client's values become closer to ours over the course of treatment. And it's very subtle, but even if we're self-aware, that can occur. Well, you can imagine that if we're not self-aware and if we're intentionally telling clients, you know, this is how you need to be, or these are the appropriate values to have, that could be quite damaging to them. But you know, really specifically to get to your question, the idea is this is a great issue to discuss in supervision or in training and to discuss with colleagues to get a good sense of, you know, what are my personal values and what are the values of our profession and how do they fit together? How do I integrate them? Something that's called ethics acculturation. And we hope to integrate them, that we don't just only go with the values of the profession and we don't just go with our own personal values, but somehow find a way to integrate them and then keep in mind and attend to clients' values and how those might be different and see how that's relevant in terms of how we interact with them. Jeff, considering what we've discussed so far, could you share some special circumstances when it's important for psychologists to revisit informed consent with patients? Certainly. And I also, just to clarify, it's impossible to address every possible situation that could ever occur when we go through informed consent with our clients. So it's definitely possible that at times issues can come up that maybe we hadn't anticipated. And one issue that often can occur is uh, that of dangerousness to self and others. And hopefully we have addressed that at least broadly in our informed consent. But anytime there's going to be a significant change in the initial informed consent agreement, we'd want to review that with the client and discuss it with them. And if we need to initiate hospitalization, whether it's involuntary or not, if we need to involve other parties in the client's treatment, all those would need to be addressed at that time. And again, if we've hopefully included this at least broadly in our initial discussion, 
we can refer back to that and remind them of that so it's not a big surprise. Another big issue that can occur that is often very daunting for mental health clinicians is if we receive a subpoena or a court order. Most of us automatically start our, have our heart beating much more rapidly if we're served a subpoena or receive a court order. And it's often very challenging and we're not sure how to respond. And we can read this, this official looking document that tells us to turn over all of our records and to show up in court or for a deposition to answer all questions. And it's vital that we have ensured that clients understand what confidentiality is in this relationship that we have with them, what the potential limits are, and this is one of those potential limits, but it doesn't necessarily tell us how to respond. And I would just say, I think it's important whenever faced with a challenging situation or dilemma, consult with expert colleagues. And in this situation, either someone who's an expert in ethics or with an attorney. But the first step is to talk with your client and say, I've received this subpoena for your records. And the client is what's called the holder of privilege. They get to decide if you release it. And the client might say, oh, of course, I'm happy to have you release it. Or they might say, absolutely not. And it depends on who the subpoena is from. It could be from their attorney or if they're involved in a legal matter from opposing counsel. And oftentimes it's helpful to recommend to your client that they consult with their attorney, that they get legal advice, and then they can direct you how to respond. But so while there has to be this additional discussion with your client when these issues arise, hopefully more broadly, these were addressed initially uh, so they understand that confidentiality is not absolute and there are certain circumstances that may arise. And then if they do, we would talk about them more specifically before taking action. I see. So we've got this notion of breaking confidentiality. I'm wondering, could you speak to other reasons uh, when it might be important for psychologists to revisit informed consent? Oh, sure. So if a client, if their treatment is going to be changing significantly, so I might be working with someone as an outpatient and the client could start deteriorating and having greater difficulties. It's possible someone might be suicidal and I might need to take actions. And some of it might be involving confidentiality, like speaking to significant others in their life and including them into treatment. But some of it could be, we might need to pursue hospitalization and take an action like that. Or there could be duty to warn, protect or treat types of issues where if a client discloses an intention to do specific harm to an identifiable victim, we might need to take an action and remind them of that. But any kind of significant change to the treatment that's being provided, even if it's something as simple as, you know, we've been meeting individually and now we're going to add them into a group treatment, or if we wanted to recommend that they consult with a physician for medication, they might have questions about that. We might need to review that. And again, how does that work? A lot of it is helping them understand what their rights and responsibilities are and what they can reasonably expect from us. I see. So that is all the time that we have for today, but I do want to express appreciation to my guest, Dr. Jeffrey Barnett, and I hope you'll join me for another episode of The Clinical Consult, a podcast from the National Register of Health Service Psychologists.